The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Glad that you're here. Uh, very excited about this. Uh, we've been in a, a teaching series called The Everlasting Wonder over the course of the last several weeks. It's taken uh, fr- from the, the hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, which refers to the incarnation as the everlasting wonder. It's a miracle, a wonder whose depths we will never plumb. Everlastingly, we'll be enjoying and exploring what it means that God took on flesh for us. The first week we asked, what is man? If Christ became man, what even is man? The second week, we consider what St. Athanasius called the divine dilemma. How could a holy God who loved us into existence, how is it that he didn't lose purposes for us? And the answer is the incarnation, that Christ could die for our sins and restore our humanity. Last week, Jonathan Franklin, our media director, talked on why the incarnation was necessary, why it had to be the God-man who came and died for our sins. And it was a, he had to be a man so that he could represent us to God, but it had to be God because only God could save us. God was the only one who wasn't implicated in the mess. Uh, in a community group, I talked about those blue, you know the blue paint when you open the bags from the bank? Like if you steal from the bank, you open the bag and the blue paint gets everywhere. It's like Adam and Eve, you've seen that in movies, like I don't know it firsthand, but if Adam and Eve opened the bag and the blue paint splattered everywhere and there's nothing in creation that doesn't have the blue paint on it, but God who is outside of creation isn't tainted with the blue paint and so he could come in and he could do something about the mess. That's what Jonathan taught us last week. And this week, we're going to ask this question. What is God like? What is God like? We're going to take a look at John chapter 14. So if you want to go ahead and turn there to John 14, and you can also have a finger in John 1 to be ready. As you're turning, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit, I'm going to pray to him and ask the Holy Spirit to give us illumination. By the way, if your kids get the squirms and the wiggles, you need to get up and walk them around, that's totally good, totally good. Let's pray. God, our guide, by your word and spirit, that in your light, we pray that in your light we may see light, that in your truth we may find wisdom, and in you we discover peace through Jesus Christ. God, you are our helper by your Holy Spirit. Open our minds that as we read these scriptures and as we teach on these scriptures, as your word is proclaimed, that we we pray that we would be led into your truth and we would be taught your will for the sake of Jesus, who is our Lord. Lord Jesus, we come and we thank you specifically for the Staffords who were married yesterday. We thank you for blessing our church with a new marriage. We come and we pray for the many sick who are in our body. I pray for my wife who has been home with sick kids for what feels like an eternity. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, for her. And I pray for my sick kids and the other sick kids and sick spouses that are represented here this evening. I pray for Joy and Carol Leopard, folks we love and miss, who can't be with us right now for this season. Well, Jesus, we, we pray for these newcomers who are here tonight, either family who are just in town visiting, uh, old friends who are in town visiting, or folks who are darkening our door for the first time. We pray that they would feel warmth, that they would see that we love you and that we love others. We pray that you would uh, be with them this evening, and we pray most of all that you would help and renew us by your Holy Spirit. And again, as we consider your word, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak to us and make us like you. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the overwhelming majority of people on planet Earth and the overwhelming majority of people who have been on planet Earth believe in some kind of God. So it's not necessarily a question as to whether or not there is a God for most of us. The question rather is, what is God like? What kind of God is this? 
I wonder if you're here and maybe you're wondering, you're, you're one of the few, and frankly, the, the, the historical anomalies who questions as to whether or not there is a God, maybe you're wondering if there is a God. I, I suspect that much of that question is actually bound up in the first question. You doubt the existence of God because you're not sure what God is like. And the representations of God that you have come across along the way, you've just found completely unbelievable. More on that shortly. But God's identity, the answer to that question, what is God like, isn't information that we could just have intuitively or information that we could just conjure up ourselves. By definition, God is other. He's outside. He's not implicated in the blue paint, right? He's distant and other from us. He's the creator, and we're the created. And so it would be impossible for us to put together a kind of fully formed definition, a fully formed picture of who God is. There's such a fundamental difference between God and his sort of the, uh, what he is ontologically, like what makes him up as a being. Such a fundamental difference between us and God that we couldn't just build up a picture of God from the ground up, so to speak. It'd be like asking Hamlet to describe Shakespeare in detail. It's like, how, how would he even begin to do that? We're talking about two very different kind of realities and existences. The only way that Hamlet could have any categories to describe Shakespeare is if Shakespeare wrote himself into the story. And that's what the God of the Bible does. The God of the Bible, we're told again and again, is a speaking God. God speaks in these big dramatic stories in the Old Testament. He interacts with characters like Adam and Eve and Moses in the burning bush, the prophets, Elijah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jonah. And we're also told in the scriptures that in God's created world, God leaves something of his thumbprints, his fingerprints behind. You have scriptures like the Psalms that tell us that the sky proclaims his handiwork, that we see something of who God is in the stuff that God's made. We can know something of God through his work. But we've complicated it. What we can know of God, we've made a mess of. We already mentioned the limits to knowing and seeing God because we're finite, but the scriptures also tell us we can't quite get a clear picture of God because we're fallen. We're corrupted internally. The fourth century Christian thinker, St. Athanasius, said it like this. He said, men, foolish as they are, thought little of the grace they had received in being created in God's image and turned away from God. Listen to this. He says, they defiled their own soul so completely that they not only lost their apprehension of God, but invented for themselves other gods of various kinds. They fashioned idols for themselves in the place of the truth and reverenced things that are not, rather than who God is. As St. Paul says, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. He says, in the garden, we turned away from God, we willfully rejected God, and it resulted in a darkened understanding. Our souls have been defiled So we have these corrupted pictures of God, and we end up worshiping false gods, lesser gods, inventing idols to sort of suit our whims and our fancies. And he quotes Romans chapter 1. We exchange the creator for the created. Instead of worshiping the one behind the stuff, we worship the stuff. And so the situation we find ourselves in is tough. We're made by God. We're made for God. We're made in God's image. But we're in the dark about who this God actually is. We've darkened ourselves to knowledge of this God. And if we're created to be image bearers, well then, how are we to know the image that we're supposed to image, right? Imagine being an 18th century Swedish taxidermist who's commissioned by a king to make a reproduction of a lion from a lion carcass. Like, credit to my community group for telling me this story. This actually happened. So in the 1720s or so, there was a Swedish taxidermist who was recruited by the Swedish king to take his dead pet lion who had passed away and to stuff and mount it. 
But there was a problem. That taxidermist had actually never seen a real lion before, and it resulted in this. <laughs> that's, that's a thing. Like a, <laughs> a Swedish taxidermist actually did that. He, 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 it was like, you got to give the guy like a gold star, A for effort kind of thing. He had never seen a lion, and based on the <laughs> expired corpse, this is what he came up with. And then you got to love the internet. Somebody made this as well. Oh, it's so good. This is the, <laughs> someone referred to this as the derpiest lion known to man. Derpy, that's a great description. Now, this actually is our situation. Because of our sin, because we're finite, we haven't seen, we can't see God. The combo of our fallen state and, the, and our finiteness make it like we're, we're trying to make a lion that we've never seen before. We're trying to know an image of God who's, who, who, frankly, we, we've never quite seen. So how can we know what God is like? More than that, how can we love an image of God whose portrait has been obscured? We're made in his image. We can't see him. So what are we to do? What is he like? How can we avoid making that lion mistake? How can we know ourselves as image bearers? Let's look at John chapter 14, starting verse 1. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. So as we find ourselves in the Gospel of John, John is, John is unique amongst all the Gospels in that John is very concerned with who Jesus is. Almost beyond the stuff that Jesus does, John's about the, who Jesus is, and the stuff that he does is a testament to who Jesus is. Over and over again, you'll see John just refer to this, like Jesus does things to show that he's from the Father so that we would believe in him. That's John's stated purpose in writing the Gospel. In John chapter 14, we're arriving at the point where Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. So Jesus is soon to be crucified, buried, and resurrected, and ascended. And he's preparing his disciples for this exit. Jesus is, all this takes place after Jesus has done amazing thing after amazing thing after amazing thing. He's washed his disciples' feet, and he begins this farewell address to his brothers. And he starts by saying, don't be troubled. The reason they're going to be troubled is because Jesus is getting ready to make his grand exit. But he says, I'm leaving to prepare a place for you. I'm going somewhere to prepare a place for you, and that means that I'm going to come back for you. I will return to you and bring you back with me. I'm going to be with the Father who is in heaven, but I will return to you guys, Jesus says. Verse five. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus says, I'm the way to God. I'm the way to the Father. You, you want access to the Father? You go through me. You access God the Father through me. To know me is to know the Father. From now on, he says in verse 7, you do know him and you have seen him because you know and have seen me. I make God known to you, Jesus is saying. Right, so the problem is, you know, the, the Gospel of John sort of frames our situation as one of darkness. 
That's how the gospel opens. Humanity is in darkness. Not dimly lit like one of the bulbs in the ceiling fan goes out, but darkness. Like pre, the guy who invented electric, pre that guy, whatever his name was, it's not coming to mind. Like ancient Near East darkness. This is our situation. It requires illumination. And Christ is that illumination, John tells us. Jesus says, you know, I, I'm the light elsewhere in the gospel. I, I'm the one who, who makes known to you who God is. Now, one way to read this is that Jesus is just a really reliable messenger about God. Like, we, we, not just a dude, we wouldn't say that, sure, but like a powerful and exceptionally good messenger and, and a good teacher about who God is. Like, he had some really good insight and a really solid path to wisdom that was, in essence, his, his way to God. Mel, maybe Philip is thinking that, because Philip says this in verse 8. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Let us see the Father. If you're the way to the Father, give us a, open up the clouds for a second. Let us get a glimpse. Let us see the Father. Show us, and we'll be good. And don't miss Jesus' response in verse 9. Verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Watch this. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Philip, you say, show us the Father. And Jesus' response is, you've seen me. You see me, don't you? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Verse 9, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak in my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus says, my Father is in me and I am in him. This is incredibly strong language. Like Jesus is saying that the, the Father, God the Father, and Jesus are of the same essence. They're constituted of the same stuff. Jesus is saying that he's not just a teacher or a really gifted religious mind or even a special, powerful creature with really unique access to God. No, Jesus is saying, I am in the Father and the Father is in me such that to know me, to see me, is to know and see the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus says. In verse 11, he says, at the very least, don't my works attest to this. The things that I do, in other words, are things that only God could do. Don't my works demonstrate to you that to see me is to see the Father. Now, John's gospel opens really famously like this in John chapter 1. You can go ahead and flip to John 1. Gospel of John opens like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, the Gospel of John, as I said, is, is very kind of intent on helping us see who Jesus is. And from the opening verses, we get a glimpse as to who John knows Jesus to be. Jesus is God. We're told in verse 14 of the same chapter that the word becomes flesh, and that is Jesus. The word becomes Jesus, this, uh, the word becomes flesh, rather, and this is Jesus. And really clearly in verse 3, we're told that there is no other being like Jesus. One way we could think about this is to take this language. So verse 3, it says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We could take this, we could take this language and draw two columns. I'll have this on the screen. Two columns. Things made and things not made. Okay? Still a thought experiment based on verse 3, John 1. 
What kind of things would go in the things made column? We could say something like mountains, dinosaurs, the typos on me, key lime pie, that's made, and then all of us, right? These are all of the things that have been made, okay? So what then falls into the category of things not made? What, what are the things that have not been made, that have no beginning, that are eternal beings? Well, the scriptures tell us that God is, but then also in John chapter 3, John chapter 1, rather, verse 3, it tells us that the Word is. And so what John is telling us is that Jesus is God, that Jesus is, is not a creature. There's things that were made and things that were not made, and all the things that were made, mountains, dinosaurs, key lime pie, everything else, come from Jesus, who is the Word's hands. Jesus is God. It's a, it's a mind-blowing thing to think about this, especially when you consider that John was Jesus' beloved disciple. Jesus, Jesus hung out with John. They spent time together. They went fishing together. They, they laughed over fish together. And yet, John makes these amazing claims about who Jesus is. Jesus is God, according to the Gospel of John. Now, have you ever thought why Jesus is called the Word here at the beginning of this chapter? Like, why this unique designation for Jesus? Why not the Son, like in verse 14 or chapter 1? Why not just call him Jesus Christ? We all know where this is headed. Why not just call him Jesus? Why does he call Jesus the Word? Now, think about when my wife and I, Emily, first met. The way that we first met was through Ultimate Frisbee. It was like a group of friends who were playing Ultimate Frisbee together. She had transferred in to North Greenville, and we started playing Ultimate Frisbee together. And it was one of those things where a larger group kind of gets reduced to a smaller group, and then it's reduced to a smaller group, and then before you know it, it's just the two of us. And I remember one of my favorite nights in my whole life was a night where she and I went to Waffle House at about 11 p.m. Can't even fathom that at this point. <laughs> went to Waffle House at 11 p.m., and we stayed there until 5 a.m. doing nothing but talking. It's like only starstruck young lovers could pull something like that off, right? Talking at Waffle House for six hours, however long that was. What, what do you do when you talk to somebody? You are opening yourself to that person. You are disclosing yourself. You're discovering common interests. You're, you're learning things to love about the other person. That is what speech ultimately is, isn't it? It's self-disclosure. It's the opening of oneself for others. So why, why does John tell us that Jesus is the word? Why does John use this particular designation? And I think the reason is this. That John wants us to see Jesus as God's self-disclosure. Jesus is God's speech to us about who God is. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18, listen to this. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the father's side. He has made him known. Jesus. So the most important question for any of us, Christian or not, is what is God like? And the Christian answer is this. Jesus. That's what God's like. Jesus. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus tells us. When we see Jesus, we see God as he is truly. Jesus is God's fullest communication of himself. Jesus embodies, epitomizes, expresses, manifests, personifies, makes concrete all that God has forever been. And one of the reasons it's so important for us to preserve the full divinity of Jesus and to teach our children to hold up two fingers and say Jesus is fully man and fully God, one of the reasons this is so vital is that because 
All of this embodying, epitomizing, making concrete requires Jesus to be God. Because if he's not God, if he's a creature, even a really powerful creature, the best he can do is relay what he's heard about who God is. And just contribute to the cacophony of voices of people arguing about what God's like. But if Jesus is God, we have confidence that this is what God is like. What is God like? The Christian answer is Jesus. Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So there's there's two major implications for us. The first is this. We've already alluded to this. Jesus makes God known to us. There's a guy called Thomas Torrance who says this. There is, in fact, no God behind the back of Jesus. No active God other than the act of Jesus. No God but the God we see and meet in him. Jesus Christ is the open heart of God, the very love and life of God poured out to redeem humankind, the mighty hand and power of God stretched out to heal and save sinners. There's no God behind the back of Jesus. We tend to think about Jesus and the Father as like a good cop, bad cop kind of thing. Jesus is the good cop, God the Father is the bad cop. You got the old, angry Old Testament one and then the nice New Testament one. And the scriptures themselves totally blow up that horrible caricature. You see Jesus, you see the Father. You you see the Father's heart on display in Jesus. There's no act of God other than the act of Jesus. The purest, fullest display of all that God is, is Jesus. And specifically, Jesus on the cross being broken for sinners. Where we see God's justice and his eternal commitment to righteousness, to address sin, but God's heart of compassion and mercy for his people. On the cross, we see the fullness of who God has always been. This, to me, is incredibly encouraging and life-giving. You know, I, I would imagine that for many of us here, when it comes to thinking about what God's like, we have a tendency to almost interpret God, like who God is and how God feels about us, based on the stuff that's happening to us in the present. In other words, we think that God's feeling towards us are to be seen through our circumstances, So if we find ourselves in a life that we didn't want for ourselves, if we're bearing up under hardship and suffering and disappointment and dead ends, even if we know better, we can't help but feel like the reason this stuff happens is because this is how God feels about me. God feels like I'm worthy of being given disappointments. God feels like I'm a C-plus follower of Jesus and he's going to give me a C-plus kind of life. He rewards us with these disappointments. But actually, the place that we see God, the place we see his character, and the place that we see his feelings towards his people is Jesus. Jesus Christ is the open heart of God, the very love and life of God poured out to redeem us. The mighty hand and power of God stretched out to heal and save us. Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You you want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. I mentioned earlier, for those of us who struggle even to believe in God, much less think about what God's like, I wonder if this changes things. Like, I wonder if the God you say you don't believe in, we also don't believe in. Maybe the God that you say you're an atheist about is a God that we too are also atheists about. The God we believe in is Jesus. And we would invite you, wherever you're at in this, to have a hard look at Jesus. Because I'm convinced that anyone who does so seriously would find that there's something that makes you want him to be God. You read the Jesus of the Gospels and you think, if God's not like Jesus, I wish he was. What you read of him, man, I find myself thinking, I hope that it's true what Jesus says about himself. 
that this is what God is like? Wouldn't we want this man to be the supreme ruler over all things? The Jesus of the Gospels with a resounding yes. That's how I respond. Jesus is the light who dispels our darkness, our ignorance of God's true nature. Jesus makes God known to us. Here's the second implication, and it's downstream from the first. Jesus makes us known to us. Jesus makes us known to us. We were made to image God, right? We were were made to embody God's rule on earth on behalf of God. And if Jesus is the perfect, complete image of God, to become like Jesus is therefore to finally learn to image God rightfully, right? To become like Jesus, the one and only God-man, is to fulfill our destiny as human beings, this is who we've been intended, this is who we've, it's, God has intended for us to be from day one, is Jesus. Listen to this from Michael Reeves. He says, Christ is so full of life. A man with towering charisma, running over with life, health, and healing. Loaves and fishes, everything abounded in his presence. So compelling did people find him that crowds would throng round him. Men, women, children, the sick and the mad, the rich and the poor, they found him so magnetic, some just wanted to touch his clothes. Kinder than summer, he befriended the reject, and he gave hope to the hopeless, and the dirty and the despised found that they mattered to him. His closest friends found that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. He was generous, genial, firm, and resolute. He was always surprising. Jesus was utterly loving, but he wasn't soppy. His insight would unsettle people and his kindness would win them. He's pure but never dull, serious but with sunbeams of wit, sharper than cut glass. He would out-argue all comers in debate, but never for the sake of a mere win. He knew no failings in himself, yet was transparently humble. He made the most grandiose claims for himself, and yet does so without a whiff of pomposity. He ransacked the temple. He spoke of hellfire. He called Herod a fox and the Pharisees corpses and makeup. With a huge heart, he hated evil and felt for the needy. And this is just scratching the surface. There are four Gospels devoted to who Christ is. This is who God is, and this is who we're called to be. I said a couple of weeks ago that as we, as we grow in holiness and we, we grow in Christ-likeness, we're coming into our own as a species. Jesus makes God known to us, and Jesus makes us known to us. So the question bearing down on every soul tonight is, will you embrace Jesus? And in doing so, will you embrace God himself? We see Christ, we see the Father. And when we see Christ, we see what we have always intended to be forever. You know, I know it's sort of a thing to, uh, uh, to talk about the Christmas carols you like the least, and I'm a staunch defender of all of the Christmas carols. They all have a place. Mary, did you know? Don't get me started. It's great. It's a great song. And we sing Silent Night, and there's a lot to say about the song Silent Night. There's a lot of debate as to how silent a night of a newborn, you know, actually is, having been there three times over. But listen, there is one thing that for sure was not silent the night Jesus was born. There's one thing that was not silent for sure that night. You know what it is? God. He had never been more vocal. Through the cries of a newborn, God speaks with more clarity than he ever spoke to Moses, Elijah, David, or Solomon. God's voice thundered as the word took its first breath and squealed its first squeal. 
While the umbilical cord was cut and mom and dad wondered whose eyes he had in a cave in a rural bedroom community of Jerusalem, God spoke to us in Christ. And he invites us to see and to know and to enjoy and to model our lives after him. And the question for you is, will you? If you followed Christ for decades, will you press further into who Christ is and know God more and, and, and learn what it means to be human more? Or maybe, maybe you have never in your life considered giving yourself over to Christ. The invitation is there for you to turn from your ways of doing things and turn to Jesus and believe and find life and life everlasting. I urge you, give yourself over to seeing and knowing Christ. What is God like? It's Jesus. And that demands a response from each of us. These next few moments, we'll just create some space. The band's going to come. I'm going to pray. The band will uh, come up. Um, and we'll just have some space for you to consider some of the things that have been said tonight. And if you have any questions about any of the things that I've said, I would love to speak further with you, as would any of our group leaders. We would love to talk with you about these things. I'll be available at the back door uh, for the remainder of the evening. Uh, if you came with somebody, feel free to ask them a little bit more about some of the things you've heard tonight. With that, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you this fourth study of Advent, reflecting on your first coming, thinking of how you so clearly made yourself known to us and how you, you were the light that pierces the darkness. You were the light that shows us the darkness of our own hearts, the darkness of our ways, the darkness of our ignorance, but Jesus, you have, you have dispelled that darkness and made yourself known to us. And I pray that tonight, every soul in this room would, would take a deep dive into who you are, Jesus, to press into you, to see who you have revealed the Father to be. As I said a moment ago, for, for those of us who have been doing this for decades, I pray that you would push us deeper, that we would know you more deeply and we would enjoy you more deeply and that we would uh, behave like you more deeply, Lord Jesus. I pray for these kids in this room, many of whom who have not yet believed, I pray that you would soften their hearts to the gospel and that one day they would repent and they would receive you and would be baptized and would follow after you with all of their, their little hearts and their little souls and their little minds. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make our church a church who is about making Christ known because Christ makes God known. And we pray that we would devote our lives to imitating the one that we see in the scriptures for his namesake and for our good and for our joy, Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in Christ's name, amen.